Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, we're sharing a program from our archives. In 2019, the National Constitution Center was honored to be joined by Kim Phuc, the subject of one of the most famous photographs of the Vietnam War. Dr. Phuc was joined by composer and trumpeter Hannibal Lacumbe and author Mark Bowden for a moving conversation with moderator Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff. Hannibal will present the world premiere of his tribute to Dr. Fook, First Breath, Last Size, A Journey Called Life, as well as the tribute performance of The Children of Fire, which was the piece that he wrote immediately when he was impressed and moved to do so when he saw the picture of Dr. Fook. And that will be tomorrow night at the uh, Philadelphia Episcopal Cathedral at 6.30 p.m. And please join uh, if you can. But this morning, we are going to hear a preview of the piece, and then we're going to hear from Dr. Fook, and we're also so honored to have Mark Bowden, one of America's most distinguished journalists who's written pathbreaking books about Vietnam, uh, which have helped put the, the terrible conflict in context, including who 1968, a turning point in the American war for Vietnam. He's also the author of Black Hawk Down and a celebrated journalist for The Atlantic and many other publications. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our panelists. And Hannibal, it's now my great honor to invite you to inspire our audience with a selection from your piece, Children's of Fire. Uh, With us we have the great Anthony Wanzion. I guess you could call that a piano and the voice of love, Philadelphia's own Karen Slack. Thank you. 
I'll play better for you tomorrow night. <laughs> this music is, it's, uh, it's a beautiful struggle, which never ends. Much like life, it never ends. That's what I like about it. I love trying. Hannibal, it was completely extraordinary, and we felt in the music the pain of the photo. Tell us why you decided to write the piece and what you felt when you saw the photo, and what were you, what were you trying to convey in the music? I, um, I, I at first hoped that it was a, just a movie or something, but it was during the day, and of course they don't show bodies naked during the day. And uh, I stood up from my seat and uh, and I I saw I saw this human being, <clears throat> this baby running for a life, and it was a strange thing because it was me. You know, I saw myself. I saw I saw Medgar Evers. I saw Fannie Lou Hamer when I, when, I, when I saw you running. And it's very, it's extraordinary because it was like a dance. You were doing a dance with your arms like this. Remind me of Judith Jameson, great dancer. With your arms like this and your hair, when your hair was moving, there's a section in the piece where this young girl sings about how beautiful life is. So even in all of that pain, I saw this profound beauty in it, and, and it was obvious to me that you were being crucified, but at the same time you were being resurrected. You know, I was being resurrected. You know, so it took me a year to like really get over the emotion of it, so that I could get to the uh, I could get to the mathematics of the notes, the soul of the notes. And I, I finally did, and, and believe me, I was glad I, when I put the last note on the piece because it took me for a journey. I, I felt what you, I felt what you felt. That's how powerful it was. I mean, to see a, a young girl suffering like that, you know. I'm still coming to understand what it is. All of my life, I'll, I'll, I'll still be learning from, from what you gave me. And I wanted to give what you gave me to the world. So I wrote the piece. That part, those are the bombs falling. And what are the words, Hannibal? You write the words as well as the music. I've seen you compose and you channel those words in those music. What is, what is she singing? Um, what is this rain that falls from the sky? This rain that burns me until I die. Oh, Father, when will this fire come to its end? When will the angels descend to make this fire in, to save these dying men, to make their souls ascend from this fire that has no end? Because the fire is still in Aleppo. It doesn't end. The fire doesn't end. And the fire, in this sense, is ignorance and hatred how it destroys so many lies, how it destroys, destroys us. You know. So that's why to see you is almost, it's, it's too much because I, when I put the last note on the paper, I asked the creator to make sure that you could hear it. And I never thought to ask if I would be there to see it, but that's how the creator works. The creator is all knowing, you know, powerful. It's, Dr. Fook, it is an extraordinary honor that the creator has sent you here to be here and to hear this work. And we are all so honored to have you. And I would love you to tell your story. Take us back to that 
terrible day in 1972 when you were a young nine-year-old girl running down the street. What, what happened? What did you feel? And what happened afterward? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you to all of you to be here. And uh, thank you, you. Listen to you. Listen to music. It just... Uh, I don't know how to say, uh, but it's, uh, the moment has really touched me. And I'm so thankful to be alive, to enjoy with all that happened in this moment. And uh, now I have to go back <laughs> to tell you the, what happened to me at that time. Yes, I... Uh, I remember my village at that time, in June 8, 1972, um, we had been so, so peaceful. It, nothing happened. Even the people know about the Vietnam War, but the Vietnam War is happened far away from my place. And we enjoyed with our childhood. We had everything that you have here. Okay, so, but it's in that June, um, the enemies came to occupy my village. And um, as soon as my mom opened the door and she knew the war came, we are in a dangerous place. So she tried to take all her family to hide, to move out of the house. And eventually we went uh, to hide in the temple, Kaudai. And we thought that is a holy place, it would be safe. But you know, in the wartime, nowhere be saved. So we hiding in the temple uh, for three days with other villagers and South Vietnamese soldiers. They were there to protect, to protect us. So as a children, we just allowed to play nearby the bomb shelter in those three days. So the first two days that they dropped different kind of bomb, but then the third day, in the morning, they, they started to drop the napalm, the burn. We didn't know the napalm, the name at that time, but it like the bomb, it got burned. And uh, I remember after lunch, so we continued to play uh, nearby the bomb shelter. Then suddenly the South Vietnamese soldiers they saw the color mark was dropped inside of the temple area. That means they dedicated the temple was going to be bombed. So they started to jail for the children and then to run. Because of course, children always run faster than the adults. And so I was one of them. Um, I remember when we just run, myself running in the front of the temple and about getting to the highway one, then I saw the airplane was so fast to us, towards to us, and I saw the so loud and so close to me, and I have no idea I just stood right there on Highway 1, and I saw the airplane, and I saw the four bombs landing down like that. And then I heard the noise, and then suddenly the fire everywhere around me, just behind me. And that's why as soon as the bomb touched my clothes, my body, and it just burned off my clothes, and suddenly I saw the fire 
all over my left arm and I used my right hand. I did like that. Then at that moment, I remember my thought, oh my goodness, I got burned and I will be ugly and then people will see me different way. But I was so terrified, then so scared, then I ran out of that fire and I saw my brothers and I saw my cousins and some soldiers, South Vietnamese soldiers there and we kept running and running and running on the road, Highway 1, until I felt so tired to run anymore. Then I stopped. I saw many people right there on the road. Then I cried out, uh, too hot, too hot. And I remember one of the soldiers gave me some water to drink. And then he tried to help me. He poured the water over me over my body. That moment, I just lost consciousness. I didn't remember anything else that happened in that moment, on that day. And when you mentioned about the raining, yes, at the lunchtime, it's raining. It's raining. Yeah, when we get out, the road still wet, very wet, yeah. It's just amazing how it's together with the moment. You said you you were, you were not gonna make me cry. You promised. I try. <laughs> Hannibal, do you have any questions for for Dr. Fook about what happened? The Creator showed me everything. Always does. Last night when you were talking about when you were playing, there's a section in the piece too where a young girl sings. Because I saw you playing, you know, I saw you playing too. Yeah. Um, we have much more to talk about what happened next, but we're going to stay with this moment for a moment. And Mark Bowden, help us put this in context. You're Book, who 1968 notes that 1968 was a turning point in the war, and yet there was something about this photograph that so galvanized the world that it contributed to the end of the war in a way that the battles had not. What was the significance of the photograph, and how can you put it in context of those other battles? Well, you know, photos become iconic because they visually capture very complicated stories sometimes. Uh, on an emotional level, as Hannibal has said, um, you know, that photograph um, emblemized that particular part of the war. Uh, the United States had entered the war heavily in 1965, and I think there was a combination of um, idealism and arrogance, um, ignorance, and arrogance. Uh, the idealism was a generation of young Americans were eager to fight the spread of communism as they saw this authoritarian menace spreading around the world. And I think with good intentions, many young Americans uh, volunteered uh, or went to Vietnam to fight. Uh, by 1968, when I, the book I wrote was about the Battle of Hue, um, it was apparent that the war was not winnable. And it was apparent not just to critical journalists or um, uh, soldiers on the ground, it was apparent to the highest levels of the American government. If you read the Pentagon Papers uh, and if you read about the administration of Lyndon Johnson, uh, the president himself had realized that the fight in Vietnam was not winnable. Uh, in fact, Johnson opted not to seek re-election because he knew that uh, he didn't want to be saddled with what was going to happen and dedicated himself in 1968 to trying to end the war then. The war should have ended then, uh, but instead Richard Nixon was elected promising to end the war, which is a very popular promise uh, at that point. And instead, and this is why this photograph is so tremendously um, 
iconic. It, it, the, it, in, a, in a nutshell, the strategy of the war became to inflict as much pain on the Vietnamese people, you know, ostensibly on the enemy, but the enemy was embedded, as we see, in the population of Vietnam, in South Vietnam. So a weapon like napalm, uh, which is an indiscriminate killer, there's no other way to describe it. It's gasoline mixed with aluminum soap, which turns it into a gel. You drop it, and it sets on fire, and it spreads fire everywhere. It kills indiscriminately. And so the image of a nine-year-old girl running terribly burned from the bombing of a village. I mean, you, you put napalm on a village for only one reason, to destroy everything and everyone in that village. That act, which ought to be a war crime, I think emblemized the uh, approach that the United States was taking toward the war in Vietnam. And it, like all the other approaches, ultimately failed. But I think that image, which was so viscerally powerful, uh, had deep meaning uh, for many Americans and I think helped to change attitudes in the country toward the war. Do you think a war is it's possible to win a war? I've never heard of a war that was won except maybe one uh, dealing with our own personal demons, our own personal pain. But I've never, in all of my studies of wars, I've never had the sense that one was ever won or that it was possible to win a war. Well, I do think wars can be won. Um, very often in the winning, they, they create bigger problems than uh, the ones they tried to end, but certainly, um, ending the Nazi regime in, in World War II was a very uh, morally useful goal. Ending slavery in the United States was a, a moral crusade that is certainly a war worth fighting. Um, so but I yes, don't, I don't feel that war has ended. Oh no, of course not. It didn't end. Slavery ended, but racism, the systematic oppression of African Americans and other minorities in this country continues to this day. And that's a big struggle for our country that began before we were even a nation. Uh, and we're continuing to, uh, to fight that battle. But yes, some wars can be won, uh, and some wars are worth fighting. But in this case, uh, I think it was apparent to everyone involved, and I spent a lot of time talking to uh, Vietnamese soldiers, South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, Viet Cong, American soldiers, and as very, very few of them, at this point in their lives, look back on it and say, yes, we could have won this war. I, I don't believe that there was any victory in it. Uh, it's a terrible tragedy. And if the goal at that point in the war was to inflict pain, it did so in, in ways that we can only begin to imagine. Hannibal, your pieces tell the story of people victimized by war in Alabama, in Vietnam, but you also talk about the resurrection after the crucifixion. Yeah. Yes, you do. And yeah, you also, man. this piece is going to be followed tomorrow night by, by another piece, First Breath, Last Sigh, A Journey Called Life, a composition in three veils. The first is dedicated to young Kevin, who is with the Morgan State Choir, and he was gunned down in the streets of Baltimore. So tell us about the relationship between... Dr. Fook's story and the story of Kevin that you wanted to tell in First Breath, Last Sigh, and what, what about the resurrection that follows the crucifixion? Well, our sister stated last night, and we, 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 we should hear, hear it from her, but <clears throat> last night it was so powerful. I, I was thinking about your words, what you said, when they found you in the morgue and your mother walked until she found you. And so what I learned was the creator gave your mother the power to find you in a morgue, in a tomb, with the big rock covering it, because the beast said you were dead, but God said you were alive. Yes. <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> See, I, I, I couldn't sleep from, from, 
from what you've taught, what you taught us. When you say that, because that analogy is so clear, you were crucified and you were resurrected. That thing doesn't apply to only 2,000 years ago in Golgotha. It's every day of our lives. People are crucified and they're resurrected. That's what I came to understand. In the morgue. In the morgue, yeah. It's not what the beast say. The beast doesn't have the final word. And that's what gives me the strength to live on, to have children, your beautiful children. Because I know the beast doesn't have the last word. The creator said to the beast, look, man, you leave. You can't play at this tempo. You don't know this song. You don't know the song of life. You can't say what this baby's going to do. It's for me to say. Man, that, that thing is... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Fook, t tell, tell us about the, the resurrection. You, what, what happened next? You met a wonderful man, you got married, you, 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 you found you, uh, Christianity, and you devoted your life to helping kids who were the victims of war. Tell us about how that happened. That's right. Wow, what a life, I have to tell you. As a little girl, I didn't understand why that happened to me. But then now I look back, I say, wow. He looked down from above. He said to that little girl, I'm not finished with you yet. <laughs> so even people put you in the morgue, but that saved your life. So my mom found me there. Then everybody was there. They were expecting to take my body back to the, the village for burial. But then it happened, uh, the um, miracle happened to me all and on and on and on. So I have to tell you that um, after the, my, my mom found me in the morgue, and then uh, they was transferred me to the another um, Basque burn clinic, and I was there for fourteen months, and I went through sixteen operations, and um, that is a long time to be in the hospital. Then I went home, uh, despite of all the circumstances. I was the only one to get burned and survive. Um, I lost my two cousins. One is three years old and one is nine months. And my aunt got burned a little bit on her leg and her arm. That's it. Then for me, it's just really beginning of my life. I, my family lost almost everything. Then but something in me, I, I had a dream because I was in a hospital for a long time and I have a dream to become a doctor. And all doctors and nurses, they really were inspire me. Um, when I, whenever I need, they were there to help me. So I say, when I'm growing up, I want to be a doctor so I can help another people just like me. Then uh, 10 years later, I studied very hard to catch up with my friends. Then I got into medicine school uh, in 1982. And wow, I was so happy. But unfortunately, at that time, the same time, the Vietnamese government they, they found me, I was that little girl in the famous picture. Uh, yeah, she's still alive. And my story became hot news. <laughs> and there were so many journalists from different countries uh, came to Vietnam and they wanted to interview me, filming me. Then. Unfortunately, the government had to involve. Then they interfere my school. Um, yes, beginning I was so happy, but then uh, there were so many times 
and I couldn't go to school uh, freely, then eventually they cut short my study. That was a very low point in my life, and I, I just really want to, to go to school to fulfill my dream, but now I, I couldn't. And then all kind of controlling and, and I couldn't do anything with my, uh, fulfill my dream. Um, those kind of uh, tragedy for me as a teenager, um, so they built me up with hatred, angry, and bitterness. Uh, at that time, when I was 19. So I just have so many questions from myself. Why me? Why I didn't die when I was nine? It's much better, seemed to me. And uh, I, why I have to suffer now, not only physical, but uh, mentally and, and emotionally? And what can I do? Uh, and what did I do wrong? What, what I did wrong? And it's all kind of question, why and why. I end up with the idea, I want to end my life, because I thought after I die, I, I don't have to suffer that much. Even I was raised in the Kaodai religion, I was really devoted in that religion to be good, to be, uh, you know, like, uh, do good, and then I just hope that the good thing come into my life. But I didn't receive anything uh, good as I wish, but suffering. Every morning, uh, I knew it was somebody controlling me, and I couldn't go to school. I, 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 I couldn't go on with that way anymore. So now I look back, it's something that in me, it was seeking the truth, seeking the purpose, seeking for the answer. Then that I got that. So I use my daytime. Uh, I dig into the library in Saigon, searching the purpose for my life. And I poured out all the religious books in the library, reading, and all the monks of the book I had read is the New Testament. And in the Bible, when I read, the more I read, the more question I had because I didn't understand why Jesus say like that, why and why. Because I, 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 I was raised in a totally different religion. And so at that moment, I was so confused when I read, when Jesus say, I am the way, the true and the life. No man can come to Father but by me. I say, wow, what? What was true? Like my religion or Jesus <laughs> uh, say like that, which was true. I was really confused, but that is the beginning. So on the process, I just seeking and seeking at the end of the uh, uh, December 1982, when I heard the message about Christmas, when Jesus came, that's why we celebrate Christmas. And this, yes, we're going, right? This month is a Christmas. That is so wonderful. So the baby Jesus came, and then he growing up, and he died on the cross to pay for our sin. And if everybody, if anyone opened their heart to receive Jesus Christ as uh, their personal savior, then Jesus will come to his heart and bringing peace and take away the burden. When I heard that message, deep down in my heart, really, I needed that peace. And I really needed somebody came to my life, take away my burdens. 
and my heart really touched. And that's why that moment, um, I just went out uh, and go in the front of the church, and I just opened my heart to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That is a transformation, and that faith has helped me a lot from that moment in Christmas 1982. It's just an amazing turning point for me that I, um, I started to pray and through Jesus Christ, and then the more I pray, the more peace I have. The more I pray, I feel like, wow, now I know that when I die, heaven is my home. And I pray for the wisdom. I pray for peace, and I pray for forgiveness. Everything has come through my life. I, had, I have the, re- you know, I realized that after I became Christian, not on, only just a, the religion, but I have the relationship between me and God and Jesus. That is a relationship. It has helped me. It's healed me. It's just everything. Not about religion, but it is a relationship I have. because I need it. That little girl really needed to have peace. And it doesn't matter people say, people controlling me, people say something, I don't care because I cannot control what they're doing, what they're saying, uh, their opinion, but is I can control how I respond. And it's helped me to move on from that point to this point. And I learn a lot, and uh, that is how, how I survived. It's an extraordinary story, and that transformation has helped you to become one of the most important advocates for children of violence around the world. And I'm going to ask you more about that in a moment. But Mark, I, I, I want to understand, what was it about this photograph in particular? There are three iconic photographs of Vietnam that we all know. Uh, there is Dr. Fuchs' picture. There's the picture of the monk who is setting himself on fire in protest, and there's that terrible picture of the execution of the Vietnamese uh, prisoner. But it was this one that seemed to really turn the tide. What was it, and what, what about the timing, and, 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 and how specifically did this photograph capture the imagination of American policymakers in ways that actually led to the end of the war? Well, there's no way that whatever your political persuasion or your uh, ideas about the war went, a nine-year-old child is not the enemy. Uh, Any uh, uh, battle that burns terribly a nine-year-old child is failing on some level. And I I documented this in the the Battle of Hue, where much like the people in your village, there were many people living in Hue, Vietnamese people, who were not communists and and also were not necessarily particularly uh, supportive of the South Vietnamese regime. They were trying to survive. Uh, The the city of Hue is, um, the northern part of the city, is a fortress. So there were some 500,000 people living in a walled fortress that had only limited entrances and exits. And so it became impossible to flee this battle. And, and, and so they had on the one side uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong who had occupied the city who began to execute people who they labeled as supporters or collaborators with the South Vietnamese regime. And then on the other hand, you had the uh, South Vietnamese army and the uh, United States Marines eventually dropping napalm inside the uh, citadel walls. People dug bunkers under their homes and many died. Um, when bombs hit their, the structures of their houses. So, I mean, when you are ostensibly fighting for a cause, uh, and that cause is indiscriminately killing um, civilians, at some point 
everyone you know, steps back and says, this is wrong. And that image of a nine-year-old girl struck by napalm, which as I said, is the sort of definition of an indiscriminate killer, uh, brought home the uh, horror of what was going on in Vietnam to many, many people. And I think you know, the public opinion had begun to turn against the war years earlier. And by 1972, I was in college then, I remember the moratorium marches where millions of people were turning out in this country to march against the war. So you know, I do think images are extraordinarily powerful and the right image captures the, the horror of the moment and also the reality of the moment. Makes me think of that image of Emmett Till, yes. which had the exact, exact same impact yep. on the world. Young, young boy <laughs> disfigured uh, by uh, hatred and violence. Photographs are powerful. A young boy who was beaten to death by uh, racists in, what, where was it? The in Klan in Mississippi. In Mississippi. And they, the African-American press t took a picture with the mother's permission of Emmett Till in his uh, coffin because, as she said, she wanted the world to see what they had done to her child. You know that I think it's uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great poet, uh, explained to Dr. King why the monks were setting themselves on fire. And after they met, it's when Dr. King made his statement against the war. He had been contemplating making his statement against the war. He knew that that would cause uh, him to no longer have access to Johnson. But when Thich Nhat Hanh explained to him why the monks were setting themselves on fire, the sacrifice that it was, that's when he made the statement. And of course, that's when he lost his 24-7 contact with the president. And that, that was tremendously influential, too, when we talk about the American public opinion turning against the war in Vietnam, um, Dr. Martin Luther King's opposition, which, if you read the statement that he gave against the war, is one of the most eloquent speeches that he ever gave, and he gave a lot of very elegant speeches, um, I think really had a tremendous influence. I miss him. I think about him all the time. <laughs> Hannibal, so much of your art is about crucifixion and resurrection. The, the Alabama church bombings, those kids in the streets of Baltimore, your latest work, that incredibly powerful chorus that you performed with the Philadelphia Orchestra last year. Pow, pow, pow. Just all those kids being gunned down. What, do, you, do you choose your subjects based on photographs? or some other way, and what do you view as the relationship between the crucifixion and the resurrection? Well, believe it or not, I, I wish the creator would give me a break. <laughs> I, 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 you know, some of my greatest moments of joy were with my wife and my grandchildren. We, we ride in the forest and everything, but when I, you know, when you see something that's not right, man, as a human being, you've got to speak on it. I think we are, we're obligated as human beings to make sure that all humans are well and whole. Whatever we do, if our, if our occupation is writing or sweeping street or cooking food or teaching our babies, we have an obligation. How could I say I'm a human being and I see you suffer like that and I not use my tool? to address that, because that will, that hopefully will prevent others from, from suffering uh, like that, you know. We, 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 are, we, are, we are obligated to each other, whether you believe it or not. One land, one river, one people. And until we learn that, we will never, we will never understand that adage that of in, on earth as it is in heaven. I was in heaven last night, you, too, you know. You're heaven. You're heaven right here. Your words are heaven for me. So I just follow orders. And sometimes, sometimes I, when, when I know they're from the creator, 
is usually things I don't want to do. And usually I have to face my monsters, which is not easy. I have to face my own. I have to face my own. The creator never gives you something easy. Just like you were, you had to fight, you had to fight that. You had to fight all of that and, and still do. I mean, because the scars are on you physically, but the deeper ones are in the soul. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, my, you know, I was attacked with my trumpet when the schools integrated, walking to the white school, and I was thinking of, about how to play uh, tenderly with vibrato so that I could play it for my mother. That was her favorite song. These five white men descended on me. Hey, what are you doing up in the white part of town? Boy, I had my brand new trumpet. They beat me, broke my collar, you know, dislocated my collarbone, scratched my face, you know, my lips bleeding, everything. But I didn't mind because uh, I figured it out how to play tenderly with vibrato. And that was my mother's Christmas present. So I forgot the beating. Dr. Fook, as you've inspired kids, children, the victims of violence around the world from war, sometimes you've showed them the photograph and it's given them hope. To tell, tell us about that and how do you minister to these kids to help them overcome their pain? Yeah, I, I'm so thankful that I being, still being alive and I have a great opportunity to uh, contact with all, most of the children um, who are suffering just like me. They have no hope, physical pain, and no future. Nobody took care of them. So when I met them, it's really, I relate with them, with the pain, physical and emotional, and um, seem like they have no hope. And I gave them my picture. I say, yes, I was that little girl. I was burned. I had no hope. I, I lost my loved one. It's just like you, part of you. So, but here I'm, I'm still alive and I have hope. I believe that God loves you too because God loved me and uh, he gave me great opportunity to uh, to be alive and to learn a lot. And now I have a capacity to travel here uh, to help you. And I really want you to see that little girl that like you uh, right now, but in the future, you have to look like me now. And uh, it's just in the past, but it's the past as tech is in the future, present in the future, and I, I believe that uh, if you just keep going, don't give up hope, never. And you have to help yourself and let people help you. Let God help you and he will bring the right people in your life and you have to work together and then if when we work together, that we have a really successful life. Just like me, I, before that, I have no idea who can help me. And I had no hope at all, but now you can see that uh, my heart is healed and I have uh, time come in and I can help you. That is a great thing. Every time and I can see the life changing. And I say, even one girl or one boy, that is make me happy. Make, uh, my life is meaningful. That, I, that mean like, wow, you survive and you suffer. And not just like uh, for nothing, it's for reason right now. Your life just dedicated to work for peace and helping children. And that is uh, make a 
different. And that is, uh, that is my purpose. And so um, when, you know, when you're talking about the pain, for example, I give you one example when I was in Uganda. It's just really, really hard for me to get into the burn eunuch because that, that kind of burn that will bring me back in my childhood, 14 months in the hospital in the burn eunuch. <clears throat> I don't want to relieve that again. It's so painful. Then, but I pray, God, please help me. I have to be strong to get in. Maybe someone needs my help. Is I can do something to help people here. Yes, I got into, I met a lady. She just really got burned so badly, and she didn't want to live anymore. She stopped eating and drinking and never smiled. Even the, the nurse was there, just almost surrendered. And then I got in, and I showed her my, my picture as a little girl burning, and I showed her my scars, and I talking with her and prayed with her. <clears throat> She seemed like she not respond anything. Is she just give up? Then, when I uh, I know the time, ten minutes, and then I after I pray with her, and then I left. You know what happened? The nurse called me and said, "Wow, thank you so much for sharing your life with her." Just ten minutes, she after talking with you, she stood up and she's smiling and she eating and drinking, and that is the whole world, you know, that has changed her life. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that. I was given an assignment uh, because I met so many people who went to the war, uh, including the leader of the band that I had in high school. He went and he was never the same when he came back. And I never met someone who went to that, to that war who was the same. And I felt bad that I couldn't help them. But then I realized that the only person that could help someone who has offended someone is the person offended. So that's why tomorrow night you'll, you'll get to meet with some veterans and, and hopefully to heal them, you know. Thank you. And, and is it right that you met with one of the airmen who was responsible for the bombing and you offered your forgiveness? Yes, I learned uh, to forgive since I became Christian. <laughs> and, you know, first, my heart is healed. And uh, the real test that is I have been, uh, my, my heart has been changed when I met the uh, John Plummer. He's not the pilot who dropped the bomb, but he was coordinating the airstrike. Right. And then I just, I'm so thankful that <clears throat> we met each other in 1996 and he asking me, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And uh, I'm so thankful at that moment I was able to say, yes, I do. That's why I'm here. We met each other in Washington, D.C. And... Um, so he said to me, I never forget the words that he say. Please look at my eyes so you can see the sorrow that I carry on for 24 years. And we, we hug each other and we embrace each other and we cry. And I say, yes, I, I'm so thankful that God healed my heart and I learned to forgive. And um, just uh, be friends and uh, I'm so glad that I come. And then at that moment, the police came <laughs> and they separated us. 
Then I say, okay, I would like to see you later. <laughs> then after that, we uh, met each other. Three hours later, we met is in the uh, hotel. Wow, just, just the momentum that I never forget it. When we talk um, about his point of view and mine, and both of us have the same feeling. Like, he said that I feel like I lost my, bro my, my, my sister for a long time. Now I see her. And the same thing from me, I say, I lost my brother for a long time. Now we met each other. It's just amazing that moment. And so we became not only just I forgive him, but then uh, we still be, uh, keep in touch and be the best friend. We love each other, we pray for each other. It's, for me, it's not just something, it's just amazing, so beautiful that we come together, we forgive, and uh, it's a really uh, relief for, for both of us, and it's a really reconciliation. And I, I am so thankful that God healed my heart, and I'm ready for that. And for me, in my book, Fire Road, I just write it down that even now, day to day, I continue to pray for the pilot who dropped the bomb every single day in my life. If he died, because a long time ago, 47 years already, and that happened in that day, so if he died, I cannot say anything. But if he's still alive, deep down in my heart, one day, in my dream, I want to see him. I want to give him a hug, and I would tell him that that little girl, she loved you, she forgave you, in person, not with any kind of social media, nothing, because I understand how hard, how difficult for the pilot who, that, who did that. And that a picture is because it's cause that he dropped the bomb. And so that is, will be so tough for him. And I just, that is my dream from that little girl. We have a resolution from the city of Philadelphia, which has been written in your honor, and it will be read by a representative of the Painted Bride Art Center, which is going to be presenting the performance tomorrow night along with the Philadelphia Episcopal Cathedral, and we'll hear that resolution, and then perhaps Hannibal and his colleagues will be moved to play a little more music to send us into this blessed afternoon. On behalf of the city of Philadelphia, We'd like to recognize and celebrate the life and extraordinary contributions of peace actor, activist, Dr. Kim Fook. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The Council of the City of Philadelphia is pleased to honor the life and contributions of Dr. Fook after witnessing the horrors of the Vietnam War firsthand and having the most tragic and distressing moment of her life documented and circulated across the globe. She rose from the ashes and managed to not only survive under these circumstances, but also thrive and forgive those most responsible for her suffering. Whereas despite facing many struggles in her life, Kim Fook never lost hope. She took all of the strife that life handed her and used the well-known image and platform to promote peace and give back in any way she could. The Kim Foundation International was created in her name to help fund programs responsible for assisting children in war-torn regions of the world. And whereas on December 7th, Hannibal Lukumbi, Children of the Fire, a ceremony in honor of Dr. Kim Fook will be performed at the Philadelphia Episcopal Church. Lukumbi wrote this piece after witnessing the televised news segment of Kim Fook's image and story. He was dismayed by what he saw and immediately felt the need to express his sentiments through his music, through his music. And 
these Philadelphia-based organizations and the City Council itself strive to honor Dr. Kim Fook for her contributions, selflessness, and hope after experiencing the heartbreaking horrors of war. Her image and legacy will continue to echo through history as a warning of the damages of war and conflict on civilian populations. Therefore, by virtue of this citation, the Council of the City of Philadelphia hereby recognizes and celebrates the life and extraordinary contributions of peace activist, Dr. Kim Hoop. Thank you. Thank you. Deep. Hannibal, over to you. episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and join us back here next week. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.